2: challenging on those levels
4: listen to on purpose with jay shetty on the iHeartRadio app apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts
1: you're listening to math and magic a production of iHeartRadio. when
5: i first got out of school there was a recession there was no jobs in advertising to be gotten and certainly very few of them in tampa florida it was like a el nino year and a bunch of barracuda had been driven pretty far north in the Gulf of Mexico. And they started jumping out of the water and biting people with jewelry on. And so I was like, business opportunity. And if you're not from Florida, like a barracuda can be a four to six foot mouth of teeth, essentially. And one flying out of the water, it would be terrifying. What if I did Florida's version of the jackalope and convince people that there are such things as flying barracuda?
3: I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing, where we explore that combination of analytics and creativity that lead to the huge marketing and company successes. On today's episode, we have a guest who lives right at that intersection. Hard to imagine a more perfect practitioner of math and magic. Scott Hagedorn, CEO of Omnicom Media Group, North America Operations. Scott is a native Floridian, loved advertising even at an early age. Supposedly, he wrote an essay about it in the sixth grade, and he actually realized that childhood dream. He had his first big breakthrough selling flying barracudas. That's right. That's right. Fiberglass barracudas with fake owl wings attached. There's got to be some fun lessons in that, which we'll get into. He comes from a family with ties to everything from having a patent for a clamp that holds the mattress and bed covers to the bed. That was probably high tech back then. All the way to finance, including, I guess, helping world wrestling raise money as well. He's played in a rock band. He's made money mowing yards and removing snakes from people's backyards and even has a scar to prove it. There it is, right on his hand. You can't see it, but I can. But he's probably best known as the guy who developed the new world of data-driven advertising and analytics. But before we get into all those stories and more, let's do you in 60 seconds. Welcome, Scott. Hey, how you doing? Good, good. You ready to go? Ready to rock. Scott, do you prefer cats or dogs? Dogs. Miami or Atlanta? Ooh, Atlanta. Twitter or Instagram? Instagram. Piano or guitar? Piano. Black Mirror or Game of Thrones? Black Mirror. Radiohead or the Rolling Stones? Radiohead. Sex Pistols or The Clash? The Clash. Music or sports? Oh, music. It's about to get harder. Okay. Secret talent? I'm really fast underwater because I'm bald. (laughs) Favorite city? (laughs) Got to be New York. Smartest person you know?
5: I'd have to say Carl Sagan, but I don't know him, but I feel like he would be the smartest person I would know. That
3: counts. Childhood hero? Kiss. Someone you'd like to meet? I'd like to meet
5: the guy that writes Black Mirror, to be honest with you. <laughs> first job? Well, first job was snake removal from people's yards in Florida, but first legit job with a uh, paycheck was uh, Publix, Bag Boy. Favorite song to sing? Emotional Rescue by the Rolling Stones. Best live concert? This is going to be obscure, but Adams for Peace at the Barclay Center? That is obscure. Uh, <laughs> favorite TV show? Of all time, it's going to have to be Star Trek. Who would play you in a movie? Probably Woody Harrelson. What did you want to be when you were growing up? I actually wanted to be in advertising when I was growing up. Even though my dad's job was cool in financial services, he was a an investment banker and he helped get the World Wrestling Federation going. Andre the Giant came over to dinner at my house with Gordon Soly. Oh, that's uh, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Iron Sheik and Dusty Rhodes. I'll never forget. I was like, Mr. Soley, is wrestling real? And he put <laughs> his arm on my shoulder and he said, Scott, 100% of it. And so... uh after rubbing shoulders with some of this stuff, I had an interest in how do you persuade and influence people and and how does that work psychologically? And so it kind of drew me into the field. And my dad was really helpful because he had invested in or helped to raise money for a lot of marketing services firms and agencies and companies. And so I got a lot of internships.
3: Let's spend a little more time getting into the mind and ambitions of the young Scott. You grew up in South Florida in the seventies and eighties. Yep. Can you give us a picture of that world at that time?
5: Yeah, seatbelts optional for sure in the 70s. You know, Miami during the like Mariel uh, boatlift era was kind of crazy. It was this really weird melting pot. And we would kind of go back and forth between Tampa and Miami, which culturally those two places couldn't be more different. Now that I have kids, I have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. And I remember when I was probably four or five riding around our neighborhood on a big wheel And just getting into absolute mayhem by the time I was eight. There's this canal system called the C-14. It was dug by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And there was a landfill hill. It was the only hill in Miami. And we set up a ramp at the end of the hill. And we would tie milk cartons to our BMX bikes and jump them like 15 feet into the air into an alligator-infested canal. And that was what we would do all day. And then I'd roll back home for dinner. And that was when I was about eight juxtaposing what my kids can do now in New York, it seems like it was pretty unrestricted. The fact that my parents encouraged me to set up a side hustle business, removing snakes from people's yards, gives you a little bit of a feel for what life was okay, like. L-
3: let's get into that because this okay. is probably the most interesting thing about you is that you are a snake wrangler. Yeah. How on earth did somebody convince you to do that? And how did you do it?
5: The lawn mowing circuit was oversaturated in South Florida and It started, I was like always really curious about snakes. It was Florida in the 70s. So I was like, oh, well, if I get like a, one of the screws with a hole in it and another screw and then cut a piece of wire and put it through there that I could fashion like a noose and grab them around their neck and then kind of remove them from a property and I would charge $20 a snake to do it.
3: And where would you put the snakes?
5: I would just take them into the woods and drop them off. When it went sideways, I didn't have my little thing. And somebody wanted me to get a water moccasin off their property. And I had gotten a little bit cocky and I just grabbed it. It bit me through the finger. So I went home and I'm like, mom, I think I need to go to the hospital. I got bitten by a water moccasin. So she calls the hospital and they're like, are you sure it was a water moccasin and not a brown water snake? And I'm like, I don't know, but it bit me. And it looked like a wakasen. They're like, okay, well, we're gonna need you to come in, but you also have to bring the head of the snake in. My mom was like, okay, you're gonna have to go cut the head of the snake off so we can take it in with you to the hospital. And so I grabbed this crappy old machete that we have and went back to find the snake, and I proceeded to chop its head off. But the machete was so dull it just mutilated the whole thing. And we ended up taking <laughs> this sounds crazy now. But we ended up taking it in a trash bag to the hospital. And they're like, well, we can't really tell what kind of snake it is because the head's destroyed. And I was like, what the, you know, like, why do we have to do this whole exercise? You know, why don't you just assume it's a water moccasin and give me some antibodies or something? This is ridiculous. But that was Florida. Yeah, that was Florida.
3: So let's get a little bit about your family life. We're getting a little bit of a color of it now. Your grandfather was an inventor. That's right. He worked for a steel company called
5: Armco in Middletown, Ohio, ran their South American operations. But because he was in steel, he also fabricated stuff out of steel. He made crib guards, and my dad was in the ads for them. Maybe that might have been one of my advertising triggers. But he also made the flip-top things that you used to put on glass Coke containers and Pepsi containers. It was like a flavor saver thing where you could pop it and save the carbonation. It was also a bottle opener. And so, yeah, he used to make and fabricate stuff out of steel and then get patents for him and sell it. And you didn't go down that path? I did not get into the steel fabrication pass. It's one of the few I haven't.
3: So you started on the guitar at age six. How did that happen? That sounds pretty young. I was always into rock. My
5: cousin had given up playing guitar and they gave me like a little Spanish guitar, nylon string. I just kind of picked it up, took some lessons, then stayed at it. And I was always really introverted. So I did a lot of hanging out in my room, playing guitar, practicing, kind of playing along with stuff and just kind of stuck with it. You taught yourself. Pretty much. I had some lessons, but my lessons would always be song-oriented. The instructor would be like, oh, well, we need to teach you scales. And I'm like, I don't care about the scales. I just want to learn ACDC. Can we get down to that, please?
3: So when you think about the guitar, was it creative, was it mathematical, or was it therapeutic?
5: I'd say creative and therapeutic until I got into like the 80s. Late '80s, I had a Warlock, and then I had a Steve Vai, Jim 77, Ivanez. with Randy Rhodes and Ingvae Malmsteen, and a lot of those guitars, It increasingly became mathematical, and trying to keep up with them, like Warren Demartini from Rat and George Lynch from Dokken, Mick Ronson from David Bowie. He was sort of the precursor, I think, to a lot of the kind of the metal, and I got turned onto him in that beside Bowie documentary where I was just like, "Wow, this guy was the precursor to Randy Rhodes." A lot of the '80s kind of soloing brought me into more of a mathematical state with it.
3: So we're going to come to that in a minute because I really want to get into where these analytical skills came from and the math approach to advertising. But what lessons did you learn in your childhood that guide you today?
5: My mom has always been a very empathetic and kind person. She used to teach high school English. And coming from the South and also coming from both my father and my mother being very kind and respectful people, I try to carry that level of empathy and connection with folks. The ability to try to connect with people and not have your guard up all the time is something that I've tried to preserve and carry with me. Hopefully it's with a level of humility because I think that humility is often should be something that somebody senses in you and not something you say you are. But I hope that I carry myself with a level of humility as well.
3: Do you think that's uh,
5: part Southern culture too? Partially. People in the South look down on Florida. It's like a vestigial appendage that they think it should maybe get removed. Getting out of Florida was like step one and you be like, okay, I'm from Florida, so I come from the swamp. And then Atlanta was a step up from that, and then New York was a step up from that. You know, Some of that kind of Southern culture in terms of the respect and humility, I think, is probably regional. Yeah, I'm from Mississippi. We always there looked go, up to Florida.
3: We wanted those petrified forests and uh, the <laughs> alligator farms. Yeah. You moved from childhood to college. You kept playing the guitar. You continued your passion for advertising. You actually majored in advertising mm-hmm. with a minor in computer science and anthropology. Interesting combination at that moment in time. You're clearly setting yourself up. Or what you've done in advertising, the future of advertising, and presumably you gave up snake wrangling. Did you deliberately say this is the future of advertising? I need computer science, or did it just happen to be another interest?
5: It was another interest. My parents had an Apple IIe in the den, and nobody used it. So I learned how to program in Pascal and Turtle and C++ and a lot of those older programming languages. I was always fascinated by the human-to-technology connection. And also the reverse of that, of looking at civilizations or populations that didn't have a lot of influence from technology and how does technology change them. So I was kind of playing in that area and thinking a little bit about it. And then when I got my first real job in advertising, the position I took was with Bell Labs or at and Paradigm that used to be based out of Largo, Florida. The first assignment they gave me was for the commercial launch of DSL and CSU DSUs and multiplexers before the internet existed. And I was a strategist and I was like, well, what we should do is really do like a think piece of what it's going to be like when computers leave the den, which is where my dad's was, and enter the family room and study what we think that's going to do to change family dynamics. And I was fortunate enough to stay on that track, oddly orbiting AT&T most of the time, or BellSouth, to launch Blackberries with Research in Motion, to launch their first mobile phones with BellSouth Mobility. And I was always kind of studying the effect of technology on people, which is how I got into the data-driven side of it.
3: You know, it's interesting. People sort of forget that originally the Internet was just an application on the computer, but the computer was something completely separate from the Internet. And Steve Jobs' great change when he did the iMac was he embedded the modem into the computer, and he said the computer is about using the Internet. You know, it seems silly now, but at that moment, that was a radical thinking for that business. Radical. Yeah,
5: you had to have a Hayes 2800 baud modem and dial up through Prodigy to get on it. I
3: was at AOL, so we we, we were there. As a matter of fact, you know, there were board discussions about should we fight the Internet or embrace it? By the way, Prodigy and CompuServe decided to fight it, and AOL embraced it. Here you are today with one of the top jobs in advertising. You are clearly one of the creators of modern data-first advertising business. How much of that came from your college experience, and how much came from the work experience and you just sort of evolved into it? In retrospect, a lot of it came out of, I think, having a bit of a hacker
5: mentality my whole life. We had a Hayes 2800 baud modem, and I used to try to dial up anything that would answer and, and break into it. <laughs> anything fun? or dangerous after watching war games i tried to figure out how to call norad we got called about some stuff that i was trying to get into i ran a bulletin board that i created for metallica called ride the lightning at the time it had like animation of a guy in an electric chair getting hit by a lightning bolt when you would log on to it it was like a bulletin board so i had a hardcore like hacker mentality and data-driven marketing is more hacker mentality like how do you hack this thing together to activate it and do something new and cool that delivers results for your clients Versus enterprise class, consumers think everything is sort of enterprise class. And actually, once you get into the hood, it's like a soundboard. There's duct tape and writing on it and stuff plugged into it. And sometimes there's like impedance mismatches that are happening. But that's how I got really into digital and data-driven marketing was hacking my way into
3: it. So let's jump to your first business. Sure. Why flying barracudas?
5: When I first got out of school, there was a recession. There was no jobs in advertising to be gotten. And certainly very few of them in Tampa, Florida. It was like an El Nino year, and a bunch of barracuda had been driven pretty far north in the Gulf of Mexico. And they started jumping out of the water and biting people with jewelry on. And so I was like, business opportunity. And if you're not from Florida, like a barracuda can be a four to six foot mouth of teeth, essentially. And one flying out of the water, it would be terrifying. What if I did Florida's version of the jackalope and convince people that there are such things as flying barracuda? I learned how to do taxidermy. So I kind of hacked my way into taxidermy and I went and caught a giant barracuda and then I made a mold out of it and I fashioned a wing and started producing them out of fiberglass, hand painting them all. But what really took off was I did a t-shirt and hat line and it was called the famous Florida flying barracuda company. And I went in and sold them at Orvis. And then I knew somebody at one of the local TV affiliates and they put me on the air about it. And Ben West of West group or now 22 squared, saw some of the stuff and was
3: like, dude, you got to come work here. And that's the way you made the jump? That's the way we made the jump. What did you learn from building a product from scratch and running your own company? That one, it takes a lot of moxie,
5: right? And you can bootstrap or hack your way into doing things if you just stick with it and keep your overhead low. I went and worked at West Group for a while. I went client side and ran advertising for a division of Global Crossing called Empower that was trying to do the first voiceover DSL products. And I was running advertising for them at like 28. And then another recession hit and I recruited a bunch of people. Out of the agencies that i was using and we bootstrapped an agency with like five grand we made our own furniture i cleaned the toilets was the head of sales was the head of strategy and we started it grew it to 75 people sold it the way we penetrated the atlanta market for digital is everyone had taken on really high overhead and all the other agencies were kind of nascent and starting their digital capabilities And we came in and undercut people like IXL and ones that had taken massive space. And we were just doing it out of my living room. And then we would keep our overhead low and we became the outsourcing department for digital for all the agencies
3: in Atlanta. And then we grew and sold. What year was that? Probably 2002. So at that moment, was it apparent in the advertising business that digital was a must have or was there still the resistance to it?
5: Oh yeah. There was a lot of like, you know. And and, you know, with the first generation of digital, we had a lot of bravado to us. And so we were thinking everybody that had been in advertising for a while were dinosaurs until the recession hit. And they're like, told you kids. The wind had been taken out of digital sales too early. Kind of like what happened with programmatic, right? Programmatic was a bad word until you started being like, Hey, this is how we really generate a lot of effectiveness. The industry itself may have spoiled the apple a
3: little too early, but now it's actually turning out to be the way everything is sort of done. Just hold on a second, because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break.
0: My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad.
1: Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be
2: to be. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia.
3: He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here with Scott Hagedorn. You're one of the few people who I have to say a bit of meetings and I basically have to say slow down just a little bit because you began to explain all the capabilities that are available today using data analytics and AI. Where is this going? What does the advertising business look like in five years and who are those winners and losers in that realignment? I think advertising itself
5: as a Like an orchestration engine between media and content and audience signals will get smarter. But I think the most dangerous thing that's happened over the last five or so years is the divorcing of content from context. The content can appear, but if it's not contextually relevant and makes sense on the platform that it's appearing, it's insane. I worry that we're not thinking enough about when consumers or people or audiences are mentally available to be influenced or persuaded or talked to. Because we've abused their attention too much as a commodity. You know, we're kind of coming out of the other side of the quant revolution in marketing. And I feel like we're heading into maybe more of a qualitative kind of rebirth of what planning and strategy can look like. How do we value somebody's attention a little bit more? And I think the agency people don't like to think that sometimes they're actually competing with the very content that they're showing up next to. And some of that content has been designed through user experience design to steal their attention away and to get at something deeper psychologically. Am I popular? Do people like me? You're butting up against somebody's self-consciousness that is manifested through some of these applications. And so I think there's going to be a reckoning around that, a revaluing of consumers' attention with respect and a move away from what has been a
3: linear business. On this podcast, obviously, we talk about math and magic, exactly this topic. I can find everybody. I know exactly where they are at the right moment, but what am I going to tell them which motivates them? Do you think in the agency world, as we look ahead, that there's going to be more thinking about it holistically? You got to find them and motivate them as opposed to some people find them and other people motivate them. Totally. And also, when do you not talk?
5: The thing that's honestly most exciting about the other side of the data-driven revolution is suppression it sounds nerdy but it's like when do you decide not to talk when do you decide just to pass
3: give us an example
5: automotive is a great example like people are only in market for a car for a very brief window of time i tend to like to think of the automotive marketing business as my friend lauren grossman came up with this is like new car my car a car next car right mentally you're moving through that progression and you want to get somebody when they're between a car and thinking about their next car. So that's that window, that in-market timing window that you want to talk to somebody. There's a lot of data that sends strong signals of when somebody's in market for a car, not based on their last automotive purchase or their lease data or or some behavioral search data. That should be used, I think, to narrow the window of when we're talking to people about when they're in market for a car, because the rest of it is all just, just noise. Or if you know somebody has subscribed to your product portfolio, why are you still advertising to them? Should respect their attention a little bit more and, and know that you already have a relationship with them. That's why poorly done remarketing drives me effing crazy because a lot of times you're getting retargeted, especially some of the e-commerce platforms are kind of sloppy about this, about reselling your data, but you're getting retargeted for something you just bought. It's like, I, I just bought that. I mean, thank you. Are you
3: reminding me that I made a good purchase? Just go away. Go away. Right. Yeah. So when we look at this realignment, how does that change the power players? Who becomes more important? Who becomes less important in that world?
5: I'm really interested in what's happening with content and with streaming right now. I'm also really fascinated how Roku and Apple TV have made, it's almost like they're kind of the reverse of Mike TV from Willy Wonka. They've made a jump from the real world into the digital world. You know, they're going to more applications and less physical product. I think a lot of the players that seamlessly and frictionlessly deliver content onto a variety of screens are going to be the ones that win I think some of the platforms that are just there for vanity and for validating your own popularity, people are snapping out of it. I think people are waking up that they're being kind of manipulated and that their attention and their devotion to some of these platforms that they were somewhat taken advantage of. I'm fascinated to see, as a student of the industry, what's going to happen with marketing during the next election cycle that's starting to play out right now. Do people disconnect from media channels and platforms that make them feel bad. I know for sure that advertising on those platforms can have the very opposite effect that you want to have happen, which is something that I call negative brand equity. You may be reaching people, but you know who you're rubbing shoulders with on that page is making them less
3: likely to be interested in you. We've known that from traditional media for years. Yeah. His environment yeah. actually matters. Context uh, matters where, yeah. where, where they're receiving the message. I think all of us here, the lay people out there saying, what's going on? Someone's spying on me. They must be listening to me. I think they're listening on my phone because I mentioned a product and suddenly there it is. And are they thinking those brands are creepy?
5: If you ask people that, they're going to say yes. The companies that are doing voice-enabled search and AI are purposely putting some wobble in the system because they found when it's too accurate and the voice sounds like this, yes, Bob, it's going to rain at... 130 today bring an umbrella would you like it brought to you like when it gets that level of accuracy that makes you feel like you're dealing with an algorithm it freaks people out every study i've read about that it's like people get really creeped out when they're interfacing with technology and the technology is too accurate and i think that same holds true for advertising putting a little bit of wobble in it the nerdy term for it is relaxing your deciles so it's like expanding your audience by dropping some of the attributes of who you're targeting makes it a little bit more human.
3: And there are some regulatory things that force you to do that. So from the Incredibles, when everybody's super, nobody's super. Syndrome, what, nice. Yes, right. So what happens in this world now that all of us, so-called traditional media companies, diehard included, now have these data capabilities, does that begin to level playing field and do we break down silos?
5: The thing I find interesting about technology is That it's only as good as the people that are using it and the hypotheses that they have. The playing field will get leveled, but I think it'll still come down to whether it's iHeart, whether it's Omnicom Media Group, whomever. It's ultimately about the people that are at the helm. To go back to Star Trek, it's like it still had a crew. You know, the Enterprise was a badass ship, could do a lot of things, had photon torpedoes. But it had a crew. It had a diverse and cool crew that had hypotheses that were going and cruising around space with no real mission other than to be on a mission. But the crew is really important. Technology will only get you so far. I want our people to have really interesting hypotheses that they could either prove, disprove, test their way into being real or not. But I want them to be enabled. And I think that
3: technology is a great enabler, and we should think of it that way, versus an automator. One of your major clients, P&G, has really changed the whole dialogue about re-embracing some of the traditional companies' sectors like radio and outdoor. Talk a little bit about those new capabilities that have opened up that world for companies that are as sophisticated and as smart as p to begin to reevaluate the landscape differently. They know
5: the payout of some of the channels, and they know that the consumer's attention's there, and if they have really great content and creative, that there's an opportunity to have a dialogue, and that some of the digital channels are still proving themselves out. The thing about working with PNG that I always appreciated was their rigor on the test design and kind of match market testing and looking for the incrementality of new channels and making sure they were proven out before they made big bets. Their discipline to marketing and evaluating channels is something that I have a lot of respect for. Thinking about it from a cross client perspective, I think some of the best work that I've frankly seen coming out of our agencies is coming in the outdoor space and coming in the audio spaces. Some of the stuff we did on PNG with Chompers, which we distributed and syndicated through iHeart and Right, I remember we did it with Gimlet. That cost us relative to its effectiveness a very efficient way of going to market, but I also thought really cool and creative and the thing about trying to convince P&G to do something like that is it doesn't really live within the syndicated systems of record. We paid for most of that program just to prove
3: it. Uh, and you guys have bet big on podcasts now. Absolutely. Well, we're yeah. number one commercial podcaster and us and NPR go neck and neck month yeah. to month. And it's a new world. You've won a lot of awards, you personally, and the work of your agency, including a number of Cam Lions. You were Ad Week Executive of the Year in 2017. This heady stuff. How do you deal with the recognition? This is sort of personal as a manager. Mm -hmm. Have that kind of recognition and keep it from affecting how you see yourself and your internal compass. I'm always like hugely embarrassed
5: about some of those things. Like I, I like winning awards for strategy, content, creativity. Personal stuff is weird. Unfortunately, for those of you that don't know me that are listening to this, I'm a 225 pound bald guy that's like six feet tall. So I kind of stick out. The hard thing for me is I really only have like two looks. Like I have a good, badass, Morpheus, wearing all black look that I can go with. Or if I put a suit on, I look like something from the cast, a little Orphananny. So that's what's going through my mind most of the time is do I look ridiculous right now? Because the hard thing for me is self-image a little bit. <laughs> that's why I try to shy
3: away from ever being
5: photographed or on magazine covers or anything like that. Well, that's why
3: you're an audio. Perfect. We can hide. Talk about creativity. You've been the Burning Man. I go to Burning Man. A lot of folks we know do. Yep. You know, it's sort of a haven for creatives. How do you think things like that, not just Burning Man specifically, shape your outlook and your openness to ideas?
5: Burning Man, I always felt like, is like unrestricted, unfettered creativity at its best. My favorite area is like checking out all the cars it's just amazing come to mirage garage
3: next time you're there okay
5: we'll do i met the his name is arturo i met the guy that designed and sculpted the wall street bull oh sure and i'm just struck up a conversation with him and and he's like well i made the bull that's down in wall street i thought that was commissioned by the city i had no idea that that was guerrilla street art as a kid of the 70s and the 80s i associated with wall street and michael douglas and a giant block size cell phone on the beach what are you doing bud no idea that he did that during an economic downturn to try to make the people feel better that the city can be revitalized and reinvigorated, and I also had no idea that it was guerrilla street art that he just like one day it just showed up marketing at its best at its best. When I think about creativity, I just I think about him more than anyone else because I'm like, what
3: drove this man to decide to get up and sculpt an eight and a half foot bull? We see it at Burning Man. Where did that idea come Where'd from? It come from? Who thought of that and who built it? Yeah, music. Always important to you, and I know you see a lot of big shows. Do you ever play publicly?
5: Oh, yeah. I haven't in a while. In my fraternity, a bunch of the guys had this band, Water Dog, and they merged with another band in Gainesville to form Sister Hazel. The drummer, my friend Anthony, got kind of kicked out of the band, or you know, he was not part of the merger to create Sister Hazel, and so we started a glam rock band called Satan's Panties. Then I had another—I <laughs> don't know what what it is with these band names. I had another band called Digitalia— in atlanta and we used to play all the time i learned drug programming and i played guitar theremin and i programmed beats it was like a trip hop band we had a bass player a percussionist and this guy that played a midi sax and we were pretty good we opened for elton john one time and we would get some cool gigs in atlanta we played at earthlink we played to a couple thousand people one time, and I was like, oh, this is cool.
3: Did you ever think about music as your career path?
5: Oh, definitely. That was happening at the same time as the digital agency that we built the furniture for and stuff.
3: What was that in your head, the calculus there? It was a fork in the road.
5: I started burning the candle too much at both ends. You can't play till 3 in the morning on a Tuesday and then go to a client where well, you can. At the time, I could You know, go to a client not meeting not at, at 8 a.m. in so. the next morning. No, it wasn't the best. So I had to make a decision. I love the music side of it, but at the same time, we were getting some early wins and kind of was doing some cool stuff with my advertising career, and so I kind of went in that
3: direction. Let's go back for a minute. You've had this great success in data analytics, the math side of it. You had great direct marketing experience, too. We were talking about data and how it matches the creative. How does this work with brand building? So much of marketing I hear today is people saying, I'm going to move 5% more or 3% I'm going to do. But I don't hear as much as I used to about it. I've got a great brand that's going to take care of a lot of things. I'm
5: a little bit terrified right now in marketing and advertising and what's happened to it. For, I don't know, 10 years now, we've been thinking about units of marketing. Like, I want 3% more units of marketing. Well, wow, but what, what does that mean? And I feel like marketing and advertising increasingly is thought of as units of marketing. As if, one, all attention from a consumer is the same. And two, all of the creativity and brand building is the same. And I just think that's lazy. It's such a lazy way of thinking about marketing and advertising. When I started in the business, there was a really hardcore esprit de core with your clients. You're in it together, and we're going to beat the shit out of the competition. And here's how we're going to do it. And it doesn't matter if we're being outspent two to one. Here's what we're going to do. And now, increasingly, it's units of marketing. I need you to get me this many marketing units more cheaply. And what I really get terrified about is when I'm looking and talking to a client about their business and you start getting into asking questions about forecasting. How are they forecasting for the success of their business and the delivery of a plan? Oftentimes it comes down to a broken clock, an econometric model that has flawed competitive data because it doesn't look at all channels. It takes into account nothing of a lot of the cool stuff that you can do with behavioral data on orchestration and who you're serving the content to. It misses entire categories and it indexes way too heavy to television because the clock can't measure it's built for TV and the clock can't measure anything that's happening in applications because the tracking technology doesn't work so well when it's stuck in an SDK in an app. And that's where I'm like,
2: man, you know, you
5: gotta, you gotta, Try something new. Push yourself a little bit away from the dock. Get out there in the water and try to swim or try to float because doing the same thing that you've done in the past is not going to guarantee your outcomes in the future. I'm hoping for a return to how it used to be, which is like, we're in it together. We're going to do something different. How are we going to break through in this market? What can we do to put ourselves out there so that people are interested in us and paying attention to us?
3: I go back to my days at MTV or AOL where we created it as sort of the thing hard to measure, hard to say, what's the impact of having this big brand? But I know if I get the big brand then everybody's talking about, us. the business flows from it. Do you think people are afraid of putting their money in the brand because it's harder to measure? Do you see a move back to brand or you think there's even more of a move away from brand and more toward, I need to sell 200 more units and can I find a channel which will get me those?
5: Intuitively, i say yes. I think people are questioning some of the investments that were made and how they move their money around and the other two scary words that I've heard are video neutrality. Come on, man. I'm like, that's not really a thing. Rubbing shoulders with Mad Men is not the same as rubbing shoulders with Pot. You're not going to be able to convince me of that. How are you going to experiment? Some people are like, okay, I'm nervous about putting all my marketing into the slicer and dicer of audience signals and dynamically rendered creative that looks at media as units. A lot of the dco that exists is meant to render dynamic experiences into a banner like who the f- is looking at banners anymore i know that like some clients want to maintain their banner presence because it's what the model is telling them to do but i can't tell you the last time i even saw clicked on a banner
3: it's not real content you know it was something that was cool Hard to like, imagine a banner has the same impact as a human being talking to you totally talk about a podcast are very targetable. You talk about a big impact. They're not listening for 30 seconds. They're listening for 45 minutes. They're deeply involved in the story and what's going on and are Mm -hmm. sucked in. Does that fit into the math? Does it fit into the magic? Does it fit into brand building, selling more goods? How do you think about podcasts?
5: I think the math side of it needs to focus on the level of engagement and attention that the audiences that are listening to podcasts have with the content. We have metrics around reach and frequency. We don't have good metrics around attention. And active listening. I think people are really mentally available when they're listening to a podcast. And I think we on the math side need to figure out how we value attention with a media channel. Is it passive or active? And podcasts to me are a very active opportunity. And I think it also requires a lot of magic to figure out how you don't have something that bastardizes the content that it's going to land in. That's respectful of where it's appearing and how it works from an adjacent perspective. Let me ask about voice search. Yeah. Big thing on the horizon. Where is it now? Where is it going? How will people use it? It's fascinating to me looking at natural language processing and how people type and search for something versus how they uh, linguistically express themselves. Very different. It's nascent now. And I think that a lot of the users don't necessarily know what database the actual device is tied to. And so on the agency side, it's a really nascent area. It's kind of like SEO back in the day when you're trying to figure out how do you surface content. When I think about voice-enabled search, though, it gets me to a place where I'm thinking about, okay, what are going to be the boundaries in the future around ethical persuasion? Because you can already pay to influence the algorithm. That's the crazy thing for me, right? It's like, what are going to be the boundaries of manipulating algorithms for paid purposes when somebody's directly talking to the technology and anthropomorphizing the smart speaker within their home? I feel like right now we're kind of moving from mass to mass precision into personal persuasion when it's getting increasingly one-to-one, but that word personal is important because the technology is becoming more human in the way it talks to people. But the thing that I wonder is going to be next, it's kind of weird to talk about knowing that we're broadcasting into people's brains right now. Yeah, so we're doing it right now. We're doing it right right now. now to you. It's like theater of the mind. So what happens when the device that's moved from the den to the family room to our pockets is now in our bodies. What are going to be the boundaries of ethical persuasion when you're potentially plugged into somebody's subconscious? There's this crazy book that I read, Accelerando. I'm not going to spoil the story, but the guy right in the beginning of the book has uploaded his consciousness into AI and gets advice from differently tuned parts of his personality. Almost like having an angel and a devil on your shoulder. Kind of like- <laughs> Sounds like schizophrenia to me. Well, yeah, technologically induced schizophrenia.
3: Let's spend a minute on culture. You've got a big organization, very important organization, has a long and rich history in advertising all through Omnicom. What role do you see culture playing and how are you using culture to achieve your goals there?
5: You know, setting up my own shops and then working in privately held ones versus publicly held ones. You have to pay a lot of attention to culture and figure out ways to do it. When I have my own small agency, you know, you start out as pirates and you're like, okay, we're tech enabled pirates, but we're pirates. And we're here to take on the ocean and, you know, scavenge what we can and shoot people with cannons. And then you kind of move into a phase when you're like a privateer and you're kind of like a pirate, but you're working with the Navy and it's kind of cool. And then you, you run the risk of going full Navy. You don't want to be full Navy, right? And so I try to keep a spirit of privateers where it's like, yeah, you're still kind of a pirate, but you're kind of like the Navy. If the data-driven world has taken us to a place where 60% of what we do looks the same, I want 40% to be intellectually curious and moving in a direction that they believe in, that they think is around the corner that they want to get ready for and capitalize on. So it's like, okay, I'll give you the foundation to do it, but now come up with what's your thing which then leads you into what is your agency's funk factor? I like agencies to have a little bit of funk, funk in their trunk, if you will. I want them to make sure that they have crazy things that they do that don't make sense to the outside world. That if you're outside looking in, you're like, what? You know, why are you having a Halloween party on the floor in April? This makes no sense, but yet you are. You're in a people business. How do you put together and recruit your teams? I have a pretty clear formula, talent plus platform, plus product, equals growth. And I put talent first. In terms of recruiting and building out teams, I try to meet with people and make a connection and see if I think they would be a, a good fit. And as simple as that sounds, I think it's important to try to spend some time with people and really understand them, understand where they came from, what they're interested in. My real mentor in the business is Paige Thompson. A terrific guy. Yeah, terrific guy. He you know would say, Scottso, I thought for a long time that he was calling me fat, but essentially <laughs> it was from a radio personality called Scott. So he'd be like, Scott, so our talent, our whole business rides up and down in that elevator every day. And you better keep that in mind when you're talking to people. And that stuck. You know, I was like, ma'am, that is the crispest articulation of agency life. And it's why I always believe that the man is going to win over the machine and the marketing business because it's about the talent every day that comes up and down the elevator and how we invest and make the right bets on how to empower them.
3: So what advice would you today give to your 16-year-old self?
5: Ooh. Probably shave your head earlier. That is actually true. I would probably say to, to be a little bit more confident. Definitely to my 16-year-old self in Florida, I would have said don't be so intimidated about New York. Don't think that where you are now, that you don't have the raw materials, To make it on the big stage, my mom instilled in me a belief that I can do whatever I put my mind to, but it took a while for that to really kick in and for me to be fearless about that and just to go for it.
3: We always end our episodes with shout outs on math and magic, the analytical and the creative. If you think about it, can you name a person who's the greatest math marketer?
5: Yeah. I mean, I got a bunch of them. I learned everything I learned in the math and CRM world from Lauren Grossman, who I worked for at RAP. Slavi Samardzija, super smart. Adam Gitlin, the whole Analect crew, all those guys are way smarter than I do, and I give a lot of credit for instilling that.
3: So let's go to the magician. Who's that great creative marketer? Who do you think's the great magician?
5: Early in my career, he's no longer with us, but Martin McDonald is Scottish. I call him the party furnace. He was the first creative director that I worked with, and his personality was so huge. I was in awe of what he could do. He had a big impact on me. And then also Luke Sullivan moved from the Martin Agency down to West Wayne. I stole his presentation style. He could suck all the air out of a room. And then a lot of my planning chops came early on in my career from a guy named Andrew Jones. He worked for John Steele previously, and he taught me a lot about brand planning and how to moderate focus groups and draw qualitative insights and kind of land something to where a creative team would be interested in using it. Scott Hagedorn.
3: Truly, you embody math and magic, and thanks for being here. Thanks, Bob. My pleasure. Here's a few things I picked up from my chat with Scott. One, Scott thinks one of the scariest ideas to take hold in advertising in the past five years is video neutrality. As he puts it, rubbing shoulders with madmen isn't the same as rubbing shoulders with PewDiePie. Two, Scott likes his companies to have a funk factor. Whether that's peep-eating contests or throwing Halloween parties in April, having a funky company culture encourages employees to pitch bolder ideas. By the way, it might be why Scott's teams have won so many Ken Lions. Three, it sounds obvious, but it's in Scott's bones to look for new markets and then angle in. You see it in his ad work. But even as a kid, he started a snake wrangling service because everyone else had oversaturated the lawn mowing business. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's
1: episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Itor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time.